Welcome. This is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted and honored to have two brilliant and highly experienced attorneys on my panel. With me today, I have Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney who many of you have heard before, who's been with the Murthy Law Firm for over a dozen years, and Chris Drynan, who also has over a dozen years of immigration law experience. Um, let's summarize the issues or the highlights for 2011 so that we can effectively plan for 2012 and beyond. First, we would like to start by wishing each of you a happy new year and hope that you have a successful and prosperous 2012. So let's go over the highlights and in the most, one of the most significant factors that has occurred in the past month or two is the favorable development from the employee's point of view and hopefully from an employer's point of view as well. The issue about the priority date movement, especially in the employment-based second preference or EB2 for nationals of India and China. This has occurred in the latter half of 2011. Uh, which and the dates have moved very quickly. Of course, you, for you as an employer, you may look at this potentially as a negative because that means that some of your employees for whom you had filed the labor certification or PERM and I-140 will now have possible options to move on. But it remember, it opens up options and doors for you to hire valuable consultants, experienced employees, from your competition, those who may have a valid employment authorization document. And as I say to people all the time, if we create work a workplace for employees to stay for the long haul, irrespective of whether the issue is a green card processing or not, hopefully your employees will want to stay with you for the long haul because of the wonderful atmosphere and environment that you have created, even though you may be an IT consulting company. So the priority dates have been moving very steadily, especially in the EB2 category. And if you notice and observe that the dates in the January 2012 visa bulletin have moved forward by almost 10 months, meaning that literally thousands and thousands of people, particularly from India and China, and their families are now eligible to file the I-485 adjustment of status application right here in the US, obtain the EAD and the advanced parole. Um, and that way have flexibility and freedom in certain freedoms. Of course, if the I-485 does get approved within 180 days, then they cannot take advantage of moving to a different employer because AC-21 portability only kicks in in such circumstances where the 485 has been pending at least 180 days or longer. Of course, we at the Murthy Law Firm have been very busy processing and filing a lot of 485s and dealing with issues and affidavits and documents for many of your employees. Um, and the goal really is to take advantage and file while the priority date is current and not wait for it to again retrogress or move backwards. So that's like the highlight of what's just happened. Chris, I'd like to have you touch upon and discuss the entire issue of the deemed export rule, which was primarily in touch with H-1Bs, but it's not limited only to H-1Bs. That's true, Sheila. This was a very major issue at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. Um, and this concerns some new uh, USCIS requirements uh, for documenting compliance 
uh, with the U.S. law, existing U.S. law regarding export controls. Um, as of February of 2011, uh, employers filing H-1B, L-1, or O-1 petitions uh, were required to certify on the, the Form I-129, which is the form used to apply for these classifications, uh, that they are in compliance with these export regulations. Um, these primarily control the export of uh, military technology, what's called dual-use technology. That's technology that has both military and civilian applications. Um, now, in the immigration context, uh, these rules are an issue because a foreign employee can learn about these technologies during the course of their employment, and then they can take this knowledge back to their, back to their home country. And under U.S. law, this is considered an export. Uh, it's called a, deem ex a deemed export. Um, basically, it's an export in that the employee is exporting the information in their own head. Uh, now, there was a great deal of, of anxiety about this requirement when these rules were first, first introduced. Um, and, and actually, the rules were actually introduced years and years and years ago. It's just that they changed the form and required the employer to check it off. And so really, nothing really changed in the law, which is interesting. Yeah, nothing changed in, in the export requirements. These rules have been around for decades. Mm -hmm. um, it's just now that employers had to certify that they're actually complying with them. Um, we all talked about this uh, a great deal at the beginning of this year. And we had a couple of multi-law from teleconferences. We had several teleconference, uh, several teleconferences concerning this issue. Now, as it's turned out, uh, once it's been implemented, it's been not such a big issue as uh, perhaps we thought it would be. By now, most employers have, have figured out whether these requirements apply to them. Uh, and as it turns out, most of them have decided that they really don't apply to them. Um, we certainly still occasionally have this question uh, concerning deemed export come up from time to time, uh, certain industries, certain occupations. Um, but in reality, most employers uh, in, these, in these fields already know that they're subject to the, to the requirements, and they've already re obtained the necessary licenses. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm sure the employers are breathing a sigh of relief that they've, they can honestly check off that, yes, we're in compliance because it really doesn't apply in majority of the cases for IT consulting companies, for technology people, and other companies. Absolutely true. Thank you, Chris. Aaron, coming to you, I know that there's been a sharp increase in enforcement activities both by the Fraud Detection and National Security, which is part of USCIS, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and of course, our good friends at the US Department of Labor. Could you explain sort of the defining themes uh, in terms of the noticeable increase in investigation and enforcement by these agencies and how this has been impacted? And I'll have both you and Chris sort of analyze and discuss it. Sure, thank you, Shua. Well, one of the defining themes for 2011 has been a noticeable increase in the enforcement and investigation activities by USCIS, ICE, and the U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. In the H-1B department, we've seen a vast increase in the number of visits by USCIS investigators to work sites where H-1B workers are stationed. It has been our experience that these visits most commonly occur three to five months after an H-1B application has been approved by the USCIS. These investigators generally have a copy of the complete H-1B application. When they arrive at the work site, they primarily ask questions about the duties performed by the H-1B employee and the wages that he or she is currently receiving. They'll sometimes ask more detailed questions regarding the supervision provided to the H-1B employee. These types of questions regarding supervision are particularly troubling as they clearly relate to the January 8, 2010 Newfeld memo 
or an employer-employee relationship, which has caused so many problems for IT consulting companies, and which we have discussed in prior teleconferences. This could also indicate an emphasis on this employer-employee relationship issue, right of control, at the investigation level of USCIS, even for cases that have already been approved and could potentially end up with notices of intent to revoke. So they have had absolutely an increase this year. Yeah, I know that many, many companies are quite troubled uh, with a lot of this. And the major issue really appears to be the location of the employee or the consultant in many cases, because the problem really is the H-1B will mention a certain particular client location or a work site rather than the employer's office. Uh, Chris, could you go over and explain what is the specific issue and the problems and how, as an employer, our companies who are clients who are listening to the teleconference today can really benefit from understanding the issues. Yes, Sheila, this is a this is a very common problem, and it's a problem that's primarily unique to the uh, to the IT consulting field. Um, these H-1B site visits um, will occur at the location that's listed on the initial H-1B application, um, and it's not uncommon for uh, for H-1B employees who are working as consultants to move to a different client or to a different location during the course of their, their H-1B. And frequently they'll move multiple times. Um, now for many years it was a common belief, uh, probably more than that, it was probably an assumption that when an, an H-1B employee moved, you did not need to file an amended H-1B petition with USCIS because it was not considered to be a material change in the employment. Um, that doesn't really seem to be USCIS's position anymore. Um, now, relying on this, this old belief, most employers, when an employee moved, they simply would, would obtain a new labor condition application, uh, which we call an LCA, uh, from the U.S. Department of Labor uh, that's certified for the new work location. Now, the problem with this in the context of these site visits is that USCIS doesn't get any notification when there's a new LCA filed. Um, the only way that USCIS finds out that there's potentially a new work location is if you actually file an amended petition with them. Um, they have no way to know that there's simply that there's been a new LCA filed. Um, now, when this site visit by a USCIS investigator occurs at the location listed on the initial H-1B filing, and that employer is no longer there. The employee. Employee is no, excuse me, employee is no longer there. And frequently, uh, the personnel at the client site will probably not even know who this person was. Um, they might not have been familiar with him or him or her, and the person might have left some time ago. Um, therefore, when this happens, the USCIS investigator has to report that, that the worker was not found there. That is pretty scary for them because now they feel, aha, I gotcha. And so they try to uh, follow up with the company, the original mm -hmm. H-1B employer. And Aaron, how does this process work when they're unable to confirm the H-1B employment? What do they end up doing? How do they try to contact the employer? And what, what are the options from the employer's perspective? Well, now you have a situation where they're going to turn around and they're going to send an email to the employer or to the um, or to the employer's attorney, and they're going to ask them to verify the information that they tried to verify at the site visit. Usually they give very short deadlines for these emails, two or three days. If you're able to respond, it's, it's fine. They, that will resolve the issue. If you can respond satisfactorily, they'll go back and forth. It'll resolve the issue, and you should be in a great place. If you're not able to respond within the short time frame, Many times this will lead to them issuing a notice of intent to revoke 
the underlying uh, H-1B, in which case you'll be forced to respond in much more detail with much more content. Um, and it could potentially, uh, it is something that could potentially put the job and the employer and the employee at serious risk. So it's something that you have to take very seriously when you get the email to be able to go forward and to respond to. But you know, it's not just um, site visits that relate to the H-1B and to where the location of the H-1B employee is. Sometimes these site visits can also be conducted by ICE who are doing I-9 investigations. And this can happen for both large and small companies. Now, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I know the story they say that if a police officer is following behind your car, even if you're trying to do everything right, it is very likely that they'll find something that they're doing wrong just by virtue of the fact that they're there. They'll look at you and say, you're going 56 instead of 55. A light will be out. You change lanes without signaling. Something will be found. It's very similar with I-9s when they're conducting an investigation and they're looking into files that have accumulated over a long period of time where sometimes people are taking in quotes, shortcuts to be able to just get it done and get that employee up and working where they'll find very, diff very many different small or large types of violations. And these violations do come with penalties, financial penalties, potentially criminal penalties. It's really very important in light of the fact that they have these heightened investigations to make sure that everything is being done as proper as you can and to verify the eligibility of the workers that are working with you. Okay, great. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, this is, has been a really scary part, uh, an ugly head that has reared itself over the last few years. And particularly, it seems to have been continuing to increase in 2012, and we expect it to continue in 2000. Uh, from I mean, 2011, and we expect it to continue for this year in 2012 and onwards. Uh, Chris, I know that one of the the strange, unusual developments has been the spread of state immigration laws, that where states are introducing laws, sort of touching upon immigration, which That's we true. thought you know was truly a violation. How does this work, and and can you just go over it briefly? Uh, that's true, Sheila. That's been one of the uh, the biggest issues in the past year, year and a half, um, was a, a real proliferation of state laws that are related to immigration. And immigration normally uh, has been considered an area that, that's sole jurisdiction of the federal government. Um, the goal of these state laws is uh, primarily to make it difficult for people who don't have valid immigration status uh, to work or reside in these states. Um, now, these laws clearly have some, some popular appeal within a certain segment of the U.S. population. Um, most attorneys and most people who are knowledgeable at immigration will tell you these laws are really ill-advised and they're most likely, at least partly, unconstitutional. Um, trend really started in Arizona, which has been, uh, for the past several years, has been a real hotbed for some of the most really vitriolic anti-immigrant sentiments. Um, Arizona law passed in 2010, but a large portion of it has been blocked from enforcement by a federal court. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice actually filed a lawsuit against the state of Arizona. Right before the law was about to become implemented exactly. and enforceable. Uh, among the requirements of that Arizona law that were blocked by the court um, were provisions requiring all immigrants to obtain or to carry immigration registration papers. Uh, making it a criminal offense for an illegal, uh, an unauthorized immigrant to seek work or to hold a job, and allowing police to arrest uh, basically suspected uh, unauthorized immigrants without a warrant. Um, that's a provision that basically encourages uh, what people call racial profiling, um, stopping people based on their appearance or, or the way they talk. 
Um, some people co call that the show me your papers law. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Now, in December 2011, just uh, uh, about a week ago, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, announced that they were going to hear a case involving the Arizona law during the 2012 term. Uh, it's very likely we'll get a decision about that uh, sometime in June or July of 2012, which, of course, will be right in the middle of a U.S. presidential campaign. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris, for that overview. And Aaron, could you explain? I know that there have been other states that seem to have followed on in the footsteps of Arizona. Uh, you know, g give us a quick overview and so it can be uh, so that employers in those particular states can sort of look at trends and, and see where things might be heading. Sure, I'd be glad to. The one thing I think everybody has to be aware of is that in the absence of the federal government stepping in and providing laws that deal with certain situations that have just been left unhandled, situations related to to how many H-1Bs should be there to be able to support, support the United States, to what to do with people that are already here in the United States, legally, illegally, all these types of things. In the absence of the government able to make that decision, the federal government, the states are acting more and more proactive whether or not they have the authority to do so. And following Arizona, we see similar laws have passed, for example, in Alabama, South Carolina, Utah, Georgia, and, Indi and Indiana. Uh, lawsuits have been filed against all of these state laws by the U.S. Department of Justice and by private citizens. Um, all of these laws have been partially blocked by federal courts, and there's even a Supreme Court decision right now about the Arizona law that could potentially void large portions of these laws in other states as well. So I think that even though the states are taking action, the response from the courts has been very, very encouraging. Uh, to limit the actual effect of these particular laws that are happening. But if you are, if you are working in any of these states or if you're an employer in any of these states, uh, there is a lot of reason to be concerned. Um, there are they are giving state uh, officials authority to conduct raids on particular businesses, to come in and to look at documents and to look at the employees. I'll bet they're, they're doing a lot of it based on document fraud and forgery, uh, as excuses for coming into the businesses, but it is something, as Chris mentioned, that can be perceived as profiling, and it is something that until it's overturned or until the federal, the federal uh, a legislator takes some type of affirmative action, uh, it will be a problem that's going to be persistent for the while. Thank you very much, Aaron. Chris, if we can come back to you briefly to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about uh, the prevailing wage determinations and the delays that were taking place during 2011 in terms of an employer's ability to file a perm to start the green card for their employees. Uh, that's true, Sheila. There were some, some major problems this year for uh, employers and employees who are pursuing employment-based green card cases uh, through the perm process, which is the permanent labor certification process. Um, a necessary part of the perm procedure is getting a prevailing wage determination from the U.S. Department of Labor called the National Prevailing Wage Center. Um, the PERM case cannot be filed with the Department of Labor until you've received this prevailing wage determination. Uh, therefore, this is something that's very, a very important part of the process. Thank you, Chris. I think that's a wonderful overview. And Aaron, if you would be so kind as to sort of quickly go over the federal district court decision from Pennsylvania, which you know, resulted in this whole sort of H2B, the reason why the delay started um, with Department of Labor and where that's sort of ending up right now. 
Sure. Well, the, before this problem with Pennsylvania took place, you were looking at turnaround times for prevailing wage determinations. Maybe you were looking at about between four weeks, five weeks, top, somewhere in that range. If it was a private survey, it could go up to almost eight weeks. But generally, you had a, fair, a fairly reasonable turnaround time. What happened in Pennsylvania was that the Pennsylvania District Court determined H-2Bs, which also require prevailing wage, that the Department of Labor, the Foreign Labor Certification Unit in the Department of Labor, was doing it wrong. And because they made a det determination that they were doing it wrong, they said, okay, this is going to be a do-over. you got to do them all over. I don't care. And you're talking about thousands and thousands of prevailing wages that needed to be done over. So here you have the Department of Labor with a limited amount of staff, with a court order, which they can't violate, they have to, by law, do, meet within a certain deadline, the refiling of all these H-2B prevailing wages. And what happened is you looked at the timeline for making prevailing wage determination for PERM cases with the limited staff started to grow. It went from about four to six weeks to eight weeks to 10 weeks and then up to about four or five months. And as Chris mentioned earlier, that's a prerequisite for being able to file the labor certification itself to the Department of Labor, and therefore the turnaround times for filing labor certifications increased from an average of three to four months to an average of eight to 10 months per filing. And now what is the approximate time right now that they're taking, Aaron, to return the prevailing wage determination? Right now, it's currently taking about eight weeks, and it has been improving exponentially. I would not be surprised in the next few months if it came back to the four- to five-week range. That's wonderful news, I'm sure, for employers that uh, where the employees are badgering them to file the perm, file the green card so that they can get H-1 extensions and deal with situations like that. And there's just one other point I just want to mention is something unique about the prevailing wage. If you place a prevailing wage first for a green card case and then you advertise after the prevailing wage has been approved, then the validity period of that prevailing wage actually stays good for the entire period of the recruitment time. So if there, even if they issued the prevailing wage for three months and the recruitment's good for six months, you can actually carry that prevailing wage for the full six-month period of time. So some people in, in the past and even now, they come to our office and say, say to us, Aaron, what do you think of being able to do the prevailing wage simultaneously with placing the advertisements? And what I tell them that is unless there is a particular deadline, such as somebody running out of time for H-1B or something along those lines, there's a risk that by, the time you, that by the time your ads are complete and you're ready to file, that you'll have a prevailing wage that expires. So there is a benefit to doing it linear, even though it's still taking more time. And as it gets better, this problem will be less of an issue to look at. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so I thought I would touch briefly upon the issue that I know many of you have dealt with, which is the widespread problems for your employees to obtain H-1 or L-1 visa stamps at U.S. embassies or consular posts around the world. And this has been something that started really in 2010, becoming worse, but increased dramatically, um, worsened during 2011. And unless things change, we expect it to continue in 2012. Uh, India, of course, has been tremendously negatively impacted, and on a regular basis, uh, literally on a daily basis, many of us are contacted by many of you as employers who may have an approved H-1 or L-1 petition for a critical employee 
who now is stuck in India because the person thought they were going home to visit a, an ill family member or for a wedding of a sibling, some reason they thought they were going to India or to, to, to their home country for a couple of weeks and then months later they're stuck. Generally, the situation arises where the employees are IT consultants and they obtain what's called the 221G letter, which sometimes we refer to as the preliminary or the soft refusal, where the consular officer requests you as the H-1B or L-1 employer for additional documents to support the application or the petition. You are asked, for example, especially in the consulting company context for end client letters, vendor letters, company tax returns, notarized list of employees, payment of different wages, sometimes photographs of the premises, contracts and statements of work, all kinds of proof to show the bona fides of the employer, the bona fides of the job, the bona fides of the employer-employee relationship. And this procedure and this sort of process has become so commonplace <laughs> that believe it or not, the U.S. consulates, particularly in India, already have pre-printed forms where the consular officer simply checks off three or four of the items and says, here, buddy, you're on the hook and you're going to be stuck for months, basically. They don't say that, but you can get a sense that this is going to be a very long, drawn-out affair. Um, so, Chris, I thought I would have you explain a little bit that, you know, what, where do you think this sort of ridiculous list of information documents is coming from and, and what can an employer try to do? Well, Sheila, it's clear that, that all of these documents, all of these questions, all stem from the, the January 2010 Neufeld Memorandum on employer-employer relationship. That's what this is all directed towards. Um, now, if any of the visa applicants uh, give answers that indicate that they're receiving supervision or direction from their end client, uh, rather from the employer that filed their H-1B, uh, it's very likely they're going to get a denial of the of the visa and probable return of the the application to USCIS uh, for possible revocation, um, and this can occur even for very long time H-1B employees uh, who have worked for the same employer for many years, and this can be a very unpleasant surprise for a worker who's expected to return to his or her home country just for a short visit uh, for a family event. That's true, and I think what's surprising is since they have not changed the law, the regulations, or anything other than issuance of a memo which really has no binding force under law, it's really interesting how, uh, you know, there were potential lawsuits that, were ch ch that people had started to challenge, but majority of companies tend to be so afraid to challenge the government, and we believe that there's been a clear violation of the law, and an employer really can win in the right set of circumstances by challenging the government, saying that they're doing something that's clearly not permitted by failing to follow the Administrative Procedures Act, et cetera, but they're not doing it. So so what happens if the visa is ultimately issued? Why why, why should it matter? Well, if the, if the visa's not ultimately issued, the, the person cannot return to the United States. Um, and if it is issued? If it's issued, um, they can return to the United States, return to their employment, uh, presumably continue with their with their lives. And the delay, the problem is the delay that we keep talking about. The delay mm -hmm. after responding, in most of us know that the end client's obviously going to terminate the assignment. Mm -hmm. No one's going to wait three, six months, one year for somebody who's stuck outside for months on end because the client needs to ensure that the project continues with mm -hmm. that H1 employee, H1B employee or L1 employee or somebody else. 
and some t some employers may allow offshoring for a while, but usually that, that that's not a permanent solution because there's a reason they wanted somebody mm -hmm. in the U.S. Uh, and talking about the world being flat, I mean, if offshoring were completely possible, then we wouldn't need, there would be no U.S. Department of Labor because country limitations and countries' mm -hmm. borders would become irrelevant. And to a large extent, they have become irrelevant in this highly technological sort of internet day and age. I think we expect this to continue on to, to in 2012 as well. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about planning for 2012. A lot of the issues that we discussed in the problems, we talked about the problem in the past year and what we expect to continue for 2012 or change. Um, so with respect to the H-1B cap, one of the most common visas that we talked about is the H-1B. And as all of us know, there's 60,000 in the general quota plus 20,000, 65,000, I'm sorry, in the general quota, plus 20,000, which is reserved for people who have earned a US master's degree from an accredited US university. And so um, the usage of the H-1s in the past year was considerably higher than in the prior year, particularly towards the end of the year. So most of the numbers were exhausted. And then we found that it was right little before Thanksgiving in sort of the third week of November that the USCIS said the quota had been met, whereas the prior year it was really in December in 2010. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we don't obviously, none of us know what's going to happen with the economy. And so as employers, you may want to start planning and processing. So Chris, when's the earliest they can start and how can they start planning for 2012 as employers? Well, the earliest that H-1B petitions can be filed for the 2013 cap, um, which would be for a start date of October 1st, 2012, is April, this year it's April 2nd of 2012, which is actually the first, uh, first business day in April. Um, uh, now, technically, they will accept all petitions that are received in the first five days. Uh, those are all considered, uh, those will all be considered, and if they receive enough to meet the whole quota, there'll be a lottery system to, to pick the 85,000 85, uh, petitions that are actually accepted. Um, now, in past years, uh, it was very common for all the H-1Bs to be gone on the first when day the that they could be accepted. When the economy was fabulous. Exactly. Uh, they would be gone the first day. If you didn't get them in on the first day, you were, you were out of luck for the entire fiscal year. Um, now, it seems unlikely at this point that the 2000, uh, this year's cap season is going to be like that. Uh, it appears likely it's going to be faster than last year, um, but it, it's unclear how long the cap numbers will be available. I guess nobody has a crystal ball to know what's going to happen with the economy right. and when the quota will get used. But remember, if the quota does get used in early April, you're talking one and a half years wait mm -hmm. for an H-1B employee. And unless the person's on an F-1 and has an OPT or has cap-gap provisions, which could apply, most F-1s are only valid for 12 mm -hmm. months. So that's a big problem. Uh, Aaron, talking about priority dates, can you just sort of qu quickly go over where things stand and what we expect for 2012? Absolutely. Well, the good news is, as everyone's seen, the priority dates have moved forward for India and China, January 09, And that's good news. And I would say I'm going to add a caveat of just sort of. And let me explain that's to you. That's in January of 2012. For January 2012, it's the dates will be for EB2 for India and China. Back, it will be January of 09, correct. 
the issue that's that's come up is there's two things you really need to know. One thing that's very important to understand is it's the Department of State's Visa Control and Reporting Division unit. That office, their goal is to use up all the available visa numbers um, that that are there for immigrant visas within the fiscal year. A fiscal year runs from October 1 to September 30th. And within that time, they want to use up all their numbers. At the same time, the way the regulations are built is that there's only a limited amount that they're supposed to use per quarter so that the numbers can actually stretch out for the entire year. Keeping that in mind, they just had a huge jump where they're pushing it forward over 10 months. And it is very possible that as they start receiving more and more applications for their 485s, that they're going to see that they're going to overextend that quarter's amount. And if they do, it's going to mess with the regulation. It's also going to mess with the fact that they may use up their numbers too early. So there is a prediction that later on in this year, and Department of State is predicting towards June or July, that the numbers would move backwards. Um, we actually predict a little bit earlier. And we've seen a unique phenomenon that I'm going to mention now, which is the EB-3 to EB-2 upgrades. What we've seen is a lot of people who filed their labor, have their I-140 approved, they have a priority date, and now they're more experienced, they have years of experience, and they see an opportunity either to move companies, in which case they have the ability to file a new labor certification in the EB-2 category where the previous one was EB-3, and still keep the priority date, or in some unique circumstances, they've grown so high within the same company that they might even be eligible to use on-the-job experience, again, to upgrade to that EB-2. These numbers that we see that are taking place, these are not something that's in the pre-adjudication queue for the Department of State, so they're not something that the Department of State Visa Control and Reporting Division has any way to track. But now they've moved the numbers 10 months forward. So all these guys who have done their EB-3 to EB-2 upgrades who have not previously had the opportunity to file into the 485s are actually going to get that opportunity. And when they do, I suspect, and the, v and the Department of State starts counting those numbers, I suspect those numbers would move backwards even more, possibly even March or April of this year. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, I know one of the real hot big issues that companies often ask us, Chris, is the issue about why can't I just do the, what I used to do in the years prior, file an LCA amendment instead of actually spending the time and the money by hiring law firms or lawyers or even in-house with our staff filing H-1B amendments because they're much more expensive and take a lot longer, especially if employees are constantly being relocated every few months from site A to site B to work site C. And that's true, Sheila. This is a very big issue right now. And we discussed um, a few minutes ago the, invest, the increased investigative activity we've seen on H-1Bs, uh, the site visits, and the scenario where you have a USCIS investigator go to a site where the H-1B employee is no longer, is no longer stationed. Uh, they've moved. Um, the employer might have updated the LCA, which they believed was all they were required to do under the law, but now the investigator doesn't find the employee, um, and that has a, a wide variety of consequences. That can that can endanger the employee status. That can endanger endanger the employer's usage of the H-1B. Um, it really has become very clear that LCA updates um, are no longer sufficient when an H-1B employee changes location or changes in client. Um, 
In addition to this issue with the site visits, we've also seen a new form of request for evidence um, from USCIS that actually asks for evidence that an H-1B amendment has been filed um, in each instance when an employee has changed location. Um, and this is, we've seen this in the past month or two months, and this makes it clear, I think, that USCIS is expecting amendments to be filed in this situation. Um, and also the general counsel of one of the service centers, I believe it was California Service Center, uh, said uh, in a uh, public release that uh, an FAQ that they it was his his opinion that um, an amendment was required in this situation, um, and beyond the USCIS side of this, it's clear that the U.S. consulates overseas are routinely denying visa stamps um, if there's been a change in the incline or a change in location, even if an updated LCA was obtained. Uh, it's clearly the consulates, the Department of State's position that you need an amended H-1B uh, in this scenario. And you know what? So it sounds like they've been doing a little bit of waffling because I remember years ago they'd actually issued a memo saying an LC amendment is sufficient. And now from the, with this latest general counsel uh, sort of uh, release, it appears that they are now backtracking, backpedaling a little bit and saying, sorry, an LC amendment is not sufficient. We absolutely want you to file an H-1B amendment to protect yourself, your employee, you as the employer, the work location issues, and in obtaining the visa stamps at the consulates abroad. So as we plan for what to do in 2012 and beyond, it is important that you as an employer move away from the traditional practice of relying on simply the LCA update that you actually consider filing an H-1B amendment, even though we realize it is sometimes impractical and expensive. But if you just don't, if you don't increase the processing time, uh, the, 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 the validity dates, then you don't have to pay anything other than that nominal $300 plus in filing fees. And I know many of the companies with a large volume of cases tend to do the processing in-house for your H-1 amendments. So that certainly will save you some time and money, though I realize employee expenses are you know, do add up. Um, also, uh, you know, in, in the related matter that I know both Aaron and Chris discussed, the increase in enforcement activity means that it is vitally important for you as employers to retain complete, clean, and accurate public access files to update them, to ensure that you update them with information regarding the employee's salary and benefits, you obtain the appropriate labor condition application, file the H-1 amendments, uh, because otherwise it could result in fines or in worse cases, in some cases, much more than fines, debarment and fines. Uh, and of course, for companies that rely heavily on uh, H-1 workers, because there is a shortage of high-skilled, high-tech workers, it could mean the business shutting down, which obviously is not what uh, you want to have happen. As always, we at the Murthy Law Firm you know, want to help you as employers in strategically planning your immigration uh, issues, in trying to predict and understand based on last year's happenings, what we expect the trends to be for 2012, how we acting as your counsel, hopefully your general counsel for all of your immigration matters, can hold your hand and guide you in these troubled and difficult times. If the economy continues to waver, you can expect additional investigations, more and more clamping down by the fraud detection and national security, by Department of Labor, by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. But if things improve, it might help a little bit, though there is a very strong police mentality of cracking down on employers in general. 
As always, it's a true pleasure and an honor for us to help you, your business, thrive and succeed. We do hope that 2012 will be a fantastic year for you in spite of all the problems and complications because with top-notch, fabulous lawyers and law firms uh, that you work with, particularly the Murthy Law Firm, we hope that you will have a much better year ahead. We can file for you, and as I say to people routinely, prevention is always cheaper than cure. We can save you time, money, and headache for you, your business, and your employees in the long run so that you can focus on your core business and leave all of your immigration problems to the best immigration law firm in the world. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful year. And unless Aaron or Chris have any last comments, we'd like to wish you all a happy new year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. Thank, Thank you. you.